This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Our guest today is Ray Shorex. Ray has an extensive experience in capital markets and different resource company management teams. In this episode, we talk about his involvement with a few different 10-bagger companies, the importance of uh, board composition, and other things investors or speculators might want to look out for. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining in to today's episode. We have Ray Shorix, who was recently uh, a chairman and director of Bellevue Gold. Um, He's also a non-exec chairman of Galilee Energy and a non-exec director of Indigo Energy. Ray, thanks for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure. Ray, I guess what sort of uh, got you into the finance arena? Um, was there particularly uh, a few stocks or something that you were punting on when you, when you started in the industry? Can you give us a bit of a background? Of course, of course. Now, I was originally uh, in, uh, in a sort of admin financial role in a previous role, and I decided to do an, a, an MBA at the University of New South Wales. And as a result of that, I got picked up by uh, a Nick Whitlam uh, early on to start a new investment bank called Whitlam & Co. Uh, so I was the first employee there. And that really, I had no real intention of going into finance, but the opportunity arose, and I, I took that um, Yeah, So I was very happy to take that role on. And that then became... Um, Asian Capital Partners, which was an Asian-focused uh, investment bank specialising in M&A, and then we moved, I moved that. Uh, that got bought out by uh, Buckridge and Young in those days, which no longer exists. And you sort of stayed working for those companies, did you, along the way as they got acquired or merged with each other? Yeah, yeah, I stayed. I stayed along right through to all uh, BBY days. So some, you know, from the late 80s through to the late 90s, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I left BBY not till 2003, actually, yeah. Each of those different firms, I was with them for quite some time. And um, after BBY, you um, set up and were one of the founding directors in Sydney for Patterson Securities, is that right? That, that's correct, yeah. So I was one of their very first guys to, to start up the East Coast, uh, uh, they had bought a small broker, the name of which eludes me at the moment, but uh, it was very small. And Patterson's themselves were quite small. Um, uh, in terms of East Coast knowledge, uh, they were part of uh, Audmanet, uh, and then they merged, uh, uh, Audmanet merged then with uh, ultimately JP Morgan. So <clears throat> when I left uh the head, as being the head of corporate in uh, BBY, I'm, I've moved to uh, Patterson Security and opened up their East Coast office. Terrific. And Ray, when you were doing that sort of work for BBY and Patterson's, was it was it always sort of a, a mining and energy focus? 
not not particularly. It very much started off. BBY is very much about uh, property trusts and resources. So you you know you BBY was probably the preeminent uh, second tier stockbroker investment bank for the listed property trust sector. Uh, but of course, uh, in the late 90s, uh, we moved into resources and there were a couple of specialists in resources there. Um, and it wasn't really until I moved into Patterson's that there was a real focus almost entirely on resources. Okay, terrific. Was there any particular really, really good wins that, that sort of made you have a pivot or a niche in what you thought were a specific set of skills that you wanted to continue doing? Um, good question. No, look, I did have some uh, good wins in those early early years, um, but that weren't all necessarily, uh, you know, in 2001 or 2000 when the internet boom uh, occurred, a lot of mining companies that were not going so well turned themselves into internet companies and then uh, effectively then uh, turned themselves back into mining companies when the the market turned around into the uh, mining sector favour. So we specifically RTOs, reverse takeovers, were, were you sort of uh, the guy at the back background or bringing dealmakers together? And No, not particularly. There were a lot better people placed uh, at Patterson's and the other firms than I was. I was very much about front door and uh, established companies. It uh, wasn't until much later in my career that uh, the RTOs and capitalizing on those sorts of situations occurred okay terrific um one of the real reasons we wanted to get you on ray was obviously to talk about something that you've um, been heavily involved with in the last sort of few years and that's bellevue gold uh, and galilee energy i guess given that both of those have started off in sort of minnow nano caps and are now sort of in the regions of either you know the, the one to 300 mil market cap i guess we're really interested just to um find out what the factors are that turns a small cap into a large cap? Yeah, I think it's a really good question and it's one that's eluded a lot of people. But, um, you know, I think uh, one of the uh, uh, questions I often get asked is, uh, you know, so where have your major failings been in your career? What, what, What were the things that you really, you know, didn't really work out for you? And, Primarily, they were around where I spent way too much time in due diligence looking at the asset and not enough time looking at the people behind those assets that were going to run those assets. I've always got a very favourite saying that uh, that an asset will always just remain an asset. It's a, it's a person, it's a management team that turn those assets into something that's investable and something that people can make money on. I suppose that's even more true in the smaller smaller end of the market, isn't it, where the um, management and company are much probably, yeah, more significant in the influence. Yeah, that's right. And so far too often you you see manage you, you, you see people who are trying to make a, a buck, trying to, you know, find an asset and all of that, that uh, all of, you know, the, the issues around trying to find an asset and so starting off early, getting that asset, but not really understanding what's required to make that asset really work. And um, one of the real issues behind that was what, right behind the question that you ask regarding how do you make a small cap into a large cap. And obviously the first one is, of course, you've got to make sure you've got the management team that's, uh, that can do that. 
that, that in and of itself is very, very important, but it's not the end game here. Um, what you've got to make sure is, is that your board, uh, i.e. The, the, the group that sets the strategic direction of this company, also very much needs to understand about the capital markets. So it's all very well just saying, oh, well, let, you know, we found this great asset and I'm a really good geologist and I'm a, you know, I'm a chairman, I'm a great accountant. That's all very well. But have you got contacts into the capital markets? Do you understand what the capital markets require? Because as I might have mentioned before, there are over five or 600 different little companies and you you can't get across those companies um, as a broker. And so you've got to hope that somebody picks you up and that is, you know, needle in the haystack sort of stuff. So what you've got to make sure you're doing is apart from just having a good asset and good management is to make sure you've got a board that has very strong contacts into the, uh, into the capital markets because without capital, again, you won't be able to progress your, your project. Yeah, good. Are there any sort of ways that you can suggest that people make sort of a, make their own assessment of a of a board or a management team? Is there any resources or places to go and look to get a feel for how? Yeah. So, yeah. So, for example, you know, you you know, somebody's got to start off uh, in on a, in a, in this uh, arena and boards and things like that. So it's very difficult to say oh, you need experience, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have some sort of capital markets experience where you've raised capital for small caps because it's a very difficult scenario. Um, a lot of brokers try and do it and a lot of brokers fail. Some are very good, but that's because of primarily they probably start off with a very good contact within the company and somebody that's usually on that board and hopefully the chairman that's driving that process. It's very important to say, okay, right, so... I trust this guy. So when you go into the investment community, you can say, for example, just using my name as an example, you know, oh, RaceRx has done this a million times before. I know that, you know, that this is not the last capital raising they'll do. They're only raising four or five, uh, but we know that he can get the next uh, tranche. And to give you some real concrete examples, because for anyone listening to this, you, you need to understand and research these concrete examples like you should when you're researching anything to do with investments. So if you look at Galilee, for example, it really didn't have uh, what I would call a first-rate in, uh, management team. Uh, they weren't the operator of that asset. Uh, they had lots of capital and were reliant upon a big, ugly group called AGL uh, to, to run the asset. And, of course, AGL's got you know big pockets and uh, for a small cap, that, be, that can become quite dangerous because you're constantly chewing up capital. None of those people on that board were very well known to the market. And as a result, uh, they uh, really struggled to get some headway. Not that the project was bad at all, or that they were particularly bad or anything like that. It was very much that they were just unknown. Uh, and then, of course, the current management team who had finished at, uh, at Eastern Star Gas, who had been super successful, uh, decided that they would have a go at uh, trying to develop up this asset. We changed the board entirely and the management team entirely. Uh, and as a result, people knew those groups. And uh, when we needed to get capital, and we've raised capital over the last 18 months three different times, uh, sometimes in very difficult scenarios, but we had the trust of the market. We had very deep 
uh, networks and contacts into these market participants and institutions that were prepared to put their hands in their pockets a second and third time. That's super important. You don't want people to do this quick, you know, uh, grab, get a, you know, take a placement and then leave it and go on to the next placement. These are long-term supporters that are there for the long term. Now, of course, you're going to get, because that's the nature of the market, some people are coming for the short term, but uh, that's a concrete example of uh, something, and it's proven to be very successful. Market cap fully diluted of Galilee now is uh, over 300 million from a very small beginnings of 20-odd million uh, only 18, 24 months ago. Um, and that's because the market has backed us all the way along. So they trust that we know what to do with that very difficult asset. Another great example is Bellevue Gold, which was left dormant for 20 years. Um, we had a shell. We, I bought that shell. Um, but what was the most important, crucial element in that was to find the right management team. And the management team in uh, Steve Parsons and Mike Naylor uh, proved that they could pull this asset right up. And, of course, now uh, that's, uh, it's only going from strength to strength with uh, you know, 1.8 million ounces and 11 grams a tonne. Uh, it's certainly one to continue to watch. Furthermore, even for, like, it's always worth pointing out even the ones that are not so successful. So you're not just picking out two great winners that we're talking about, but Indigo has really struggled. It's got a great technology in the oil and gas space. What's kept that alive is the fact that someone like uh, the executive chair, Steve Mitchell, and myself as a non-executive director have, again, those deep roots into the markets. And when we need that second, third, or even fourth capital raising, right, we can get into that and, we, and the market can trust that we're going to get that capital. Because if you're, you're scrambling around and the last broker doesn't want to do it again and you've just got to go to another brand new broker with no real contact, then um, you know you, that's a very precarious position to be in. Uh, and so very experienced guys on board to understand capital markets, understand, you know, have the technical capability of the asset in which you operate. Um, yeah, so there's three examples, concrete examples, where it's very important that they, all those boards are very different in their temperament and nature, but all of them have a very common theme, and that is that they have very deep roots in the investment community, they have a very good asset, and they have a very good management team to extract the most out of that uh, asset. Mm, that's really interesting, Ray. I mean, I think it's uh, particularly great that you've mentioned Indigo as well because, you know, obviously people would say, well, you're just mentioning two absolute ball terrors uh, or more than 10 bags. Um, just going back, you mentioned something very interesting about the market trusting you to, to, to keep going and raise higher. I suppose that's probably some people who, are, who have done this before and raised money for companies have gone, yeah, that's, that's easier said than done, right? How, how do you do that? It's about literally saying, well, you know what, even though we could, let's just say uh, company XYZ is raising five um, and there's demand for 10, you know, is it, is it about managing that and saying, look, we're only going to take five now and you can get the next five and we're going to be higher. I mean, is it about, can you, can you shed some uh, information about that? Sure, sure. It's a really good question again. I mean, it's an excellent question because you'll never know. I mean, there is no... When you do the first raising, you hope that you reach a milestone that allows you and the, and the market to recognise you've made some serious gains and that you can raise capital at the higher level. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, and Indigo is a great example where we've had to do two down rounds. 
from the original round that we got in. Um, a lot of, if you look at all of the companies that I'm heavily involved in, um, I'm a very, I have bought stock. I don't get granted lots of stock or lots of options or anything like that. It's where I bought in early and I stayed and I kept buying. So therefore the investment community can say, well, at the bottom line, it's not like he doesn't believe it or he's, he's backing his judgment and he's backing his skill base and his management team to keep going on that. Now, for some management teams, that's not capable, is it? I mean, they're not capable of doing that. They just don't have the financial capability to do that. But by and large, you want to make sure that you've got people on your board that will participate in capital raising and not just, and this sounds very sceptical, but the market is a very sceptical beast that is just not copying a, you know, a director's fee, but is in fact participating with everybody else. So they're putting their own financial um, balance sheet at risk along with everyone else. And I think people very much appreciate being party to that, that Oh, these guys are putting their shoulder to the wheel financially, not only in a day-to-day basis, but in terms of uh, parting with their hard-earned money. Yeah, that's interesting. I know retail punters always love that, and that's one of their bugbears, and they're always gripe that you know X, Y, Z, or someone from management isn't dipping in. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's a very, very good point. The other point I wanted to come back to, Ray, is you mentioned um, Galilee Energy and the AGL. Uh, situation and and one of the things that you look at with minnows often if they say get a jv with a a rio tinto or a south 32 you tend to see you know that at the same at the very short term at least it puts a bit of a rocket up the share price because the small little company attracts the you know the big sort of tiger and, and the and the punters really like it but I can see situations or certain examples where you think, okay, well, now that we've got Rio Tinto, are they going to be throwing their weight around and throwing a pound of flesh around and are they going to take control and really leave us with very little decision-making? Do you have a view on, you know, when juniors should be approaching big majors as opposed to when they shouldn't? Yeah, again, a very insightful question. Yeah, these are are issues... um, where, you know, it's a bit like a lobster pot. It's easy to get into a joint venture relationship, much harder to get out of, and that's a problem. So you've got a partner that's got a big balance sheet, much bigger than you, uh, presumably uh, can start dictating the terms of how you deal. Um, some of the big issues that, are, that happen in these joint ventures that you mentioned is that some of the bigger players don't want you to make announcements, and you're caught between a rock and a hard place in the sense that continuous disclosure means that you have to make these announcements and you know but you've got to pass all your announcements via the uh, the big uh, the big player the big joint venture partner uh, and it can be quite time consuming and it can also be difficult in terms of decision making because you know your joint venture partner might have a person on the joint venture board who's a tier 3 person uh, and then so before they can make a decision they've got to go back up their tree whereas for you usually the managing director or someone of that nature, uh, 2IC, can make that decision on the spot because they know exactly where they sit with respect to everything. So very interesting dynamics that occur. You're absolutely right, though. The market often goes, my God, that's just fabulous. There's a vindication of your project because why would Rio Tinto, why would any of the big majors want to invest in the company unless they could see some real upside? So it is very tempting. 
um, to uh, to get those people involved, but just make sure you go into those joint ventures with your eyes wide open. Um, Ray, perhaps you can take us through um, maybe Galilee or Bellevue as an example about um, board makeup and certain skill sets and I guess balancing um, the different skill sets of a board. Yeah, good. Of course. So, you know, for example, I'm a pretty big believer in um, making sure that you start uh, your uh, your life as a small cap with a relatively small board. Uh, and that, that way, decisions can be made very quickly. Uh, decisions uh, can be made uh, with, uh, a, a, you know, a very clear uh, three people. When you're starting to get five and six people, it tends to take time. <laughs> you tend to have to get a lot of people behind the decision, uh, which is, you know, time consuming for management and for generally uh, chairpersons who are trying to run this along with their MD. So the success of something like Bellevue has been very much driven by the two executives there and myself. So the two executives, very, very, very capable human beings who understand the listed environment, but also understand the resources sector and in particular gold. Um, you'll note that in Galilee just recently, we've uh, put a new person on that board who is the chairman of Piper Alderman. Uh, and he has come on because we believe at this point, in this juncture, uh, we need to uh, bolster our board as we get bigger and bigger. We need to make sure we've got an M&A expert who can look at the things that we need to do to protect ourselves against the big, ugly senior player like uh, an AGL or an Origin or a Beach or any of those places, Santos, that uh, might unexpectedly tap us on the shoulder. Um, it's really important to understand that from my point of view in particular, that even in a small cap basis, you should always consider 12 months out, like what am I doing with my board? How do I bolster it? How do I make it stronger? What are the ways of succession planning for a board, not only just for management teams, but for boards? You'll notice, for example, with Bellevue, it'd been there for four years or something, I think it is. Um, and it was time to move to that next level, uh, which was for de development. And you needed a good chairman who understood developing minds, the budgets behind all of that, and all the criteria and employment for other bits and pieces in that in that instance. Um, so we're, I'm constantly saying to my boards and to my management team, what are we doing in the next 12 months? What skill sets are we missing? I think you'll find, and what's behind your question is, uh, I think you'll find that that very much gets done in the big cap world, uh, succession planning, because there's lots of staff and there's lots of people to consider and all that stuff. But I would urge investors to look at boards that are very dynamic and are constantly looking about how they can evolve and create th their board to be stronger and that nobody's cemented into that particular spot. That, in fact, uh, that everyone's willing to move on for the betterment of the overall company and its shareholders. Uh, and presumably, if you're a shareholder, which is what I advocated a few minutes ago, uh, then that's going to be good for you as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask there, Ray, um, maybe you're speaking more generally, not about the specific companies. Is it often that um, large shareholders play a, a significant part in the, the makeup or the changes of the board? Obviously, as a maybe just a retail person reading the announcements as they're released to market, they'll see a change of board or a director coming and going. But can you talk us through what often happens behind the scenes as those changes are being decided? Or is that something that the board itself 
you know, reconstitute well, themselves. It, it yeah, no, it tends to be something like that. I mean, uh, but but if you've got a major shareholder, i.e. someone that owns more than 5% or you've got a few of them and they're very supportive, uh, uh, we, we, you know, as a general rule, because of continuous disclosure, we don't give them any more information than we would give anyone else. So that's a level playing field. But if we have a major shareholder uh, that's, you know, fairly large, like we do in a couple of our companies, but certainly it's very broadly spread in Bellevue, for example. Uh, so therefore, it would be too hard to talk to the 40 institution that's on the register. Uh, we might talk to one or two just to say, just so you're aware, you know, we are doing this and this and this. And you have to articulate very clearly why you're doing these sorts of things. That, you know, what can be misdrewed as, oh, look, Ray Shocks is doing a runner, as opposed to, no, he's doing the right thing and moving on so that a new person can fill that place. And you'll note that, for example, uh, there is uh, that, that they've just moved into the top 300. So they will be, as a matter of course, moving to you have to have five directors and they'll be moving towards that. So you can see that they've got to start thinking. We've been thinking about what are the next steps there. Um, you know, with Galilee, we've got a, a tighter register and you might, uh, not necessarily though, you might sort of bring them and say, just so you, you know that I'm leaving or I'm staying or I'm adding someone else on. But in the, in the recent uh, scenario, we appointed, uh, it was a very much a board decision, and we appointed the uh, Piper Alderman gentleman without telling anyone because we felt that that was the, the right thing to do. And we articulated the plan to people once we announced. That tends to be the way you should do things. You know, otherwise, you're being dictated by the, by the market as opposed to a board, which is in place for a very good reason with the skill sets that they have. Oh, fantastic. And are there any other things that you sort of think are worth people considering from a succession planning or a future-proofing point of view when a company is small and looking to grow into a larger entity? Yeah, the real issue is start early. <laughs> start early uh, and make sure that the people you have on your board, you, you, you know, you trust and you can have those hard conversations when you need to have those hard conversations, you know, that your, your board seat is not, a, you know, is not a right board seats there on behalf of shareholders and that you know when the time comes you have to consider what your next your next uh, play might be so start early in those sorts of scenarios and make sure you're a flexible board and I think you'll find with uh, with uh, you know you've always got to have a fairly strong uh, chairman who who is you know very much tied to the hip with their MD especially if I'm really talking about you know small cap to medium cap um, it's very important that you're not an absent chairman, that you're helping your managing director you know, work his way through all of these particular issues and you're a real team together. And so, you know, start early, make sure the relationships that, that are, you know, key um, are really well cemented and uh, that they trust each other. Uh, you don't want to have those blues that I'm sure you've seen before uh, where it takes up too much of uh, shareholders' money and time in trying to sort out who should be doing what or, uh, you know, uh, when I see that, I think it's so, you know, I'd run a million miles before that would happen in any of my companies. 
Ray, that's a really good point. Uh, obviously, you might be referring to stouches, which then turn into 249Ds and requisitions of directors. Have you been in any situations that you may well have, with your skill set and experience, averted a crisis or can shed any light without sort of um, revealing too much? Yeah, uh, it's a much more difficult one. Uh, that's it's certainly, as you can you'd be aware, I have been involved in those things. Um, but again, um, you know, usually a 249D doesn't, doesn't pop out out of the blue, usually. Uh, and so therefore, you, you should be aware that there are, you know, generally speaking, shareholder a angst about what's going on at the board level. And you should try and address that angst before it ever gets to that point. But of course, um, uh, you know, I've, I haven't been on the receiving end of a 249D, but, uh, you know, I've been uh, proactive in making sure that we've got, um, you know, that we've we've seen what shareholders have wanted and boards have just decided not to uh, listen at that point. And, and as a result, uh, yeah, they can tend to be quite an ugly situation. You want to avoid that at all costs because, as I said before, it's time-consuming and it's costly. And just a distraction, I suppose, from the core project uh, exactly. that you're trying to develop, yeah. And I guess, Ray, it's it's about coming back to that point you mentioned at the start is about sort of looking at succession planning and, and aware of capital markets perception and, and what sort of things are, are happening, I guess, off to the sides. That sort of point makes me think about what makes a small cap different to a large cap. Ray, was obviously we talked offline about how a big broker could go and raise, you know, half a billion dollars for a large cap and, and a small broker might have a different skill set. Um, perhaps you can talk just generally about the difference. Yeah, well, that, that's a, that is very true. I mean, you know, it is a very classic example of horses for courses in that particular instance. So, you know, you don't want to reach up into the stars of the big brokers when you're a small cap because they don't really understand uh, small cap land. That's the first thing. They don't understand what's required. And they also often don't understand the... Uh, the uh, investment base uh, that would be interested in buying small caps. So if you're doing a $2 billion raising or a billion dollar raising, you know exactly where to go because there are people that have to have it. Uh, and they, uh, but you know, you, they don't really and often know uh, uh, about the small cap managers that are happy to take, you know, licks of $150,000 and high net worths that are floating around in some smaller family offices. So yeah, those, those smaller brokers, mid-cap brokers, especially in the areas, they're the ones that you need to make sure you sidle up to as a small cap rather than your UBSs and your uh, the, uh, the, and the Credit Suisses of this world because uh, really your company probably won't have the liquidity required by those big brokers to make it worth their while. I think it's a really interesting point, Ray. You mentioned you know, that the larger institutions might not understand small caps. Because I guess the reason for the, the podcast and the show that we've done is that we found there's a lot of information around for large cap companies and ETFs and investing and that sort of thing, but there's not that much understanding or awareness out there, particularly for retail and mum and dad investors about the smaller end of the market. Do you think, is there any sort of resources or I guess real tips and tricks that you can suggest to people to arm themselves with a bit more information to go into that, that end of the market a little bit more informed? Well, I, I think when I first kicked off, I, you know, one of my biggest mistakes was, you know, understanding the environment, uh, 
understanding the asset, understanding the industry, the asset for the project it was in. So if it was in, you know, for example, mineral sands, understanding about zircon and leucoxine and all of those sorts of things. But actually one of the things you should be working through in the first instance is who are these people that uh, you're entrusting your money with? Do a lot more work in small cap land on the management team, on the board and on the management team. Just check where they've been before and it could give you a great guide as to their capabilities in moving forward. It's not the be all or end all, but certainly uh, I've been bitten on numerous occasions because I didn't do enough work on the people. Fantastic. And what about, I guess, um, maybe sectors and themes more generally? Do you have a view either personally or a sort of thoughts on what people should do in terms of placing their capital? It's very tough. I mean, we, we, it's very tough. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I would say that, you know, small cap resources is a very risky area. It's not for the faint-hearted. And that's why a lot of work needs to be done. I think too many people see, you talked before about 10 baggers, but, you know, people should be thinking, you know, can this at least make me a great return on my money and what's the likelihood of that occurring and what's the time frame in which that's going to happen and how much capital is required by that company before it gets to success. So yeah, they're, they're really important uh, things to consider when you're looking uh, at these investment criteria. Um, the areas that I, I like at the moment, I, I look, you know, I try to get away from those uh, fashionable trends like your lithiums and your cobalts and all of those sorts of things we've seen come and go. Uh, obviously, gold's uh, a terrific area, which I I think uh, picking your right stock, but there's a lots of good ones out there. Uh, I also like the mineral uh, sands business. Uh, it's one that's been fairly neglected and it's one that, a lot of work should be done. Not a lot of brokers follow them. There's a, you know, there's, it's been dominated over the years by iLuca. Uh, and there's a couple of small groups that are coming out now that look very interesting. And the sector, you know, uh, I think you'll find with the trade war with America, you, you would have read in the paper recently about Australia and the U, US looking at these uh, specialty minerals as being things that they need to protect. Uh, I think they're much referring to rare earths, but but which is 80% dominated by the uh, Chinese resource companies. But uh, yeah, from my point of view, I think that that's an interesting sector as well. One other point, Ray, you mentioned before, um, and I know we talk a little bit offline about it, is the importance of luck um, and promotion and sort of communication by companies to market. I'd be remiss uh, for, on behalf of punters if I didn't ask you about Bellevue Gold and, and the Tolga link there, um, can you sort of uh, maybe outline how that sort of came to fruition or, or, or maybe sort of, you know, the, the influence that um, someone like a personality might have um, without sort of talking specifically about how it might influence a company as well on the sort of growth in the long term? Well, Tolga has been incredibly influential. Uh, he has a fantastic following. Uh, the thing I will say, Tolga put his uh, money where his mouth is with respect to uh, Bellevue Gold. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's a very respected man who's got a lot of uh, support in retail uh, and some, not a lot, but some institutional base um, uh, because he has been successful. And, you know, uh, he was not a man to interfere. He was a man to say, 
okay, I back this management team and I'm putting my you know money up and and then he would tweet his own way that he tweets and all of that sort of stuff, which is his prerogative. But he's one thing I will say about someone like Atalga and having a big personality in your stock is he was very very beneficial. Uh, of course, the company's moved on and we're now sort of uh, well the, the company is now uh, close to fifty percent institutionally owned. Uh, and so there's you know a broader array of, of people in there. Uh, Tolga still is one of the biggest shareholders in the company, second biggest I think. Um, uh, so you know he's been supportive and he's stuck there the, 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 all the way through, which I think is very important. So I guess it comes back to that point that you mentioned before for anyone thinking about this, uh, Ray, is, is, is doing your research and working out if, if this person XYZ can bring value and there's going to be a harmonious relationship that's going to make sure that they're sticky and that they're supportive of the management's vision, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I said before, he's, he really wasn't, uh, didn't interfere. He didn't put pressure on us. Um, no, he was very, just a very supportive shareholder. Yeah, thanks, Ray. I know you talked before about the importance of luck and not so much specifically perhaps with Bellevue, but do you have an opinion on how much of a role luck has to play in investment and, I guess, resource exploration? Yeah, look, I think you'd be silly not to say that luck does play quite a big part, but uh, it depends, you know, like I think just finding uh, the Bellevue site in the first place, which had lain dormant for 20 years, um, was very fortuitous. Um, uh, and then, you know, of course, finding uh, the right management team who just left a pre- you know another another gig so they were free. I mean, all of those very serendipitous, um, which, you know, you can't help but think that, you know, right timing's everything and certainly luck. But, you know, you do make your own luck. You have to be in it to win it. Um, uh, and then you've got to make sure once you've got it that you create a situation. You're always changing, you know, like you mightn't get your first hit all that well, You but you've really got to plan. That's where planning, and, it, and again, it comes to management that know their stuff. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one, uh, Ray, because I always look at uh, people that say, oh, you've been lucky, but you do make your own luck, and it's, it is your uh, your ability to react to certain situations. Do you have... Uh, any sort of uh, previous experience or situation where, you know, the, the drill has turned to be a dust or there's nothing there and, and you've been able to make a good pivot and, and salvage some value? Uh, nothing nothing comes from the top of mind, but... I appreciate that's a tough um, question. Yeah, but you do... But that's a good question. Like, the question's really relevant because it goes to the basis of what I said. You've got to make sure... You can pivot, as you say, that you are flexible. You can move if you're not successful in the first one. Don't just persevere with the one asset and keep spending money saying, oh, I'll put, a, I'll put another hole down 100 metres away. Whoops, that didn't work. I'll put another one 200 metres away. Whoops, a daisy, I'll try somewhere else. Um, it's really about saying, okay, wh- what do we do now? Like what is with the money that we have left, you know, wh- where do we head? What do we do? How, where's the best play? Because um, you're not in resources, always going to have a winner. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, that's really good. And one of the points I remember from one of our earlier interviews was you've always got to respect the capital that you've raised. And I think if if you're going to keep planting holes and you know you're flogging a dead horse, then that's right. You, you're going to burn those bridges. So, um, 
Just one um, more general question as well, Ray. Is there things that you sort of see retail and mum and dad investors doing frequently and often that you just bang your head against the wall and wish they wouldn't or something that you just love to scream out and say, please understand this about the, yeah, the small end of the markets more generally? Not really. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I've made some terrible investment decisions over the last 30-odd years. Um, <laughs> so it would be very hypocritical of me to uh, say that... Uh, uh, I think, you know, over-exuberance is the thing that I notice a lot um, where, you know, stock prices get pushed up way beyond their true value and then when they come back to their true value, everyone's disappointed. But in fact, it's where, you know, no board ever asked them to to take it to those levels. So that over-exuberance is probably something and that tends to happen from the retail market more than it does the institutional market. The institutional market tends to come a bit later. Um yeah, so that's probably one point that I'd make. Yeah, thanks for that. And no, certainly not to say that you've got all the answers, but certainly the aim of the show is to help learn from people's experiences that they've had over the years. Ray, this um, this has been a really f- insightful conversation, just understanding what makes some of these little miners 10-baggers or, you know, growing in value. And I think even if it's not a 10-bagger, if it's being able to grow and raise at higher prices, ultimately you're talking about a company's long-term success. I guess just to, to finally uh, close off, I'm, um, you mentioned the mineral sands. I mean, apart from Galilee and Bellevue, do you have anything that you like in the in the small cap space? We always have to ask our, our guests what they think is their 10-bagger their pick if they had to give one. Uh, mine's in the, in the unlisted. It's unlisted. I think it'll probably come to market, so keep an eye on it. It's called Relentless Resources. Uh, very much driven by two fellows, uh, uh, David Fraser and Andrew Law. Uh, and they have been raising money in an unlisted market, and they've done a very good job. Uh, and they've uh, enlisted, uh, well, tried to see whether I can assist them going forward. And I really like what they're doing. I like their resource. I like the quality of their resource, uh, and I like the way they're going about it. In a, you know, they're not trying to be the biggest uh, mineral sands player in the world straight off. They're growing slowly. They're keeping it in the unlisted se- sector for the moment. And then, uh, yeah, I would imagine come March, April next year, they'll get into the listed environment. So that's certainly one to watch. Terrific. That, I'm going to give you a technical pass there, Ray, because that's not exactly a, a listed company right now. But um, no, no, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> answer all the same. Well, I really don't know anything else at the moment except for Galilee and Bellevue. But uh, I, I suppose it goes to the very core of my investment philosophy in the latter years is very much a focus, like just focus and get, understand your story back to front and believe it. And it doesn't, you know, it hasn't been plain sailing. Uh, it took us a good nine to 10 months at Bellevue and it's taken us the best part of four or five years for Galilee. So, you know, these are things that take time. But again, if you've got the, if you've got the resources within your management team and you've got the resources and networks within the capital markets, people will back you. Fantastic. It's probably a good point to wrap up on there, but thank you so much. There's some really good um, insights and points there for people to go in and consider before their next investment. Thanks very much for your time, Ray. This has been a really insightful conversation. We appreciate you jumping on the show. No problem at all. All the very best to you. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.